Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If you turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we left off verse 9, we're going to begin with verse 10 tonight. Um, God is weaving a tapestry. He orchestrates all of human history. From the beginning of creation, when God said, let there be light and there was light, to the end of creation, when Jesus returns, when we see the the whole of all of the redeemed in heaven shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Together, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from the beginning to the end, God is orchestrating a masterpiece. It's like a tapestry though. And sometimes all we can see is the backside. Right? You have a tapestry, and on the backside you've got all kinds of knots and things, and it just doesn't make sense. But on the front side, when you flip it over, you can see the beautiful design that was there that the designer came up with. And in our lives, when we experience pain and suffering, and when we experience things that don't go the way we think they should go, we need to remember that God is in control, that He is weaving together a tapestry that is beautiful, that we cannot see from our side right now. But He knows what He's doing. He has named the end from the beginning, the prophets say. Tonight, Ecclesiastes deals with some of the problems that we face in life and and, and it takes this perspective of how God knows what He is doing. And it does no good for us to try to argue with God. He knows what He's doing. Let's listen to what the preacher says from Ecclesiastes Chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death 
better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the mouth of mirth, house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrects, corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control, that you are the rock of ages, that we can trust you, that you are a solid and firm foundation, never shaking. You are always trustworthy and reliable. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We can stand upon your word and it gives us light in a dark world. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our minds or that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey your word. Father, give me grace as I preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we come to the preacher and he says something that sounds kind of familiar, but not quite the same thing. In an earlier chapter, we heard him says, say, whatever will be has already been as if there's nothing new under the sun, but this is slightly different from what he has said before. I'll read it again. Who, whatever has come to be has already been named has already been named. The, the word name, uh, the, the verb there, named, it's actually two words in the original language. It's called by name. 
Um, and, and, and it's the same words that you might see in the creation story whenever God calls the name of the light day and the darkness He calls night. He's naming it. And here, the preacher says, whatever has come to be has already been named. Whatever you're experiencing in your life, whatever tragedy you may be going through, or whatever joys you may be going through, it has already been named by God. It has already been called out. He has... He has declared it from the beginning. The pro- I think it's in Jeremiah that says he has, he has declared the end from the beginning. He is the sovereign God in control of all of human history. And here we say, see the preacher saying, whatever has come has already been named. And then he adds, and it is known what man is. In this text, when it's talking about man, it's not just using any general word for humanity, but it's it's using the word for Adam. Uh, Man. Adam means man. It also means dust. It means dirt, right? So he's, he's using the name Adam, reminding us God knows what man is. Man is the very dust that God made him out of. He's the clay. He's the potter. God is the potter. Man is the clay. He's the dust that God formed into being and blew life into. And as the potter, He has the right to do with us what He wants to do with us. It is known what man is. And not only were we finite creatures made from dirt, but also, we are sinful creatures. We find that out in chapter 3, where we, ha- we fell in a, in a perfect place, in a perfect paradise. Everything was, ex- it was perfect. And yet, Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit and plunged all humanity into a curse. God knows what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. We can think here of Job. Job, who experienced so much pain. We had, he had, uh, we know what was going on in the background because we have the advantage of seeing the inspired authors chapter 1 where God's author has, has, has written it so that we see behind the curtain, so to speak. We, we see this conversation in, in the heavenlies between God and the devil, between God and Satan, where Job is being tested. And Satan says, well, you know, if you allow hardship into his life, he's won't, he won't serve you anymore. He's only serving you because you give Him blessings all the time. You give Him him good. But if you take those blessings away, He won't serve you any longer. And so Satan is allowed to kill Job's family. 
He killed all of his children. He killed his livestock. And Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord is gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Satan then returns to God and says, you, he, Now that... that it, You've only allowed me to to touch other people. If you let me touch him, then he won't serve you. So the the Lord allows him to to touch him with sickness, with boils, and all those things. Just he wouldn't let him kill Job. And still, Job did not curse God with his mouth, but he did argue with God. He did argue with God. He disputed with God. We see here in Ecclesiastes, it says, for what advantage... I'm sorry. It's already been named, and it is known what man is, and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than him. Here Job is disputing with the Almighty, and his answer is, where were you whenever I laid the foundation of the the earth? (laughs) Where were you whenever I flung the stars into heaven? Where were you whenever I created the behemoth and the leviathan and I treat them just like a puppy? Job's mouth is shut. He cannot dispute with the Almighty. And we see the same things here. Verse 11 says, the more words, the more vanity. That's probably what Job had. You know, the more words that came out of his mouth, the more vanity. It was just empty. With Job trying to dispute with God Almighty, his Creator, it was just vanity. It was just foolishness. And what advantage to man? There's no advantage. It's no advantage at all to try to dispute with him for what he has done. Verse 12, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what man... What, what, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And of course, the answer is those are supposed to be no one. No one knows. Now God reveals to us what things are good. We can have a sense of of things that are good. He has given us His moral law to tell us what we are supposed to do. We're not supposed to kill one another. We're not supposed to steal from one another. He's given us some rules about what are good and bad, good and evil behaviors. But here... When we're observing what's happening in all of creation, when we're observing the the things that happen to us in our lives, catastrophes and joyous moments like the birth of a child, the preacher asks, who can tell what's good for man? We have to step back and we have to realize God is painting a tapestry. He's designing a tapestry. The backside is often all we see. And we don't know what God's purposes are. 
We deal with this like the problem of evil. How can God be good if we live in a world where evil exists? That's, that's the problem of evil. I've heard a Christian philosopher say that's probably the only good reason to be an atheist. Every other reason, it, it's just child's play. But the problem of evil is a real good reason to, to have a problem. But there's an answer to that. And any atheist who throws up the problem of evil won't like the answer. It's, who are you to argue with God? Who are you to argue with God? He's the potter, we're the clay. We're just dirt. (laughs) He's in charge. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Nobody. We don't know what the future is going to be except for what we've been told. (laughs) There's been an inbreaking in history where God became a man and came and lived among us and, and died on our, in our behalf so that we can be raised with Him. Ecclesiastes doesn't know the whole picture. The preacher doesn't know about all that's going to come to pass after him. And so, looking at life from the secular perspective under the sun, who can tell what will happen to man after him? After, what will happen after a man? And the answer, under the sun, is no one can tell. But we know, when we have faith in Jesus, we know a few things. We know He's coming again. We know He's coming for us. That He will raise our bodies and we will live with Him in blessed glory forever. We will be acquitted of our sins. Hallelujah! (laughs) We know some things. From the preacher's perspective and from from a a worldly perspective, we we can't know the future. He then kind of goes into this poetic section. He changes the genre, but, but still kind of following along the same theme. It doesn't really hold together perfectly in a unified way, but if you trace it out, it it, it really kind of follows along the same theme that we've been seeing. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. We can understand the first part, but the second part is a little more difficult. The first part, a good name is better than precious ointment. A precious ointment. I mean, we may think of when Jesus was being anointed by the, the woman with her hair and she broke the jar of costly perfume and, and Judas said, you know, that could be sold and given to the poor. This was a valuable, precious thing. It was probably very, very, very costly. A good name is better than precious oil. You can buy something like precious oil. It may be valuable, it may be extremely valuable, but you can buy it. You can't buy a good name. You damage your reputation, and I don't mean in the world's eyes, because sometimes people can slander you falsely, sometimes, and you will be acquitted. God will take care of that in the end, even if it doesn't happen in this life. You have one person to please. But a good name you can't buy. 
And the day of death better than the day of birth. We have a hard time understanding that. How can the day of death be better than the day of birth? Probably in a sense that the preacher talks about earlier in the book. Because he talks about how to die, at least you relieve from this suffering world, this, this sinful curse. But the, the one who was not born yet had never experienced any of that. It was still in, in a sense of innocence. So in the sense that the day of death is better than the day of birth, it's the fact that at the, at the end of your life, when you reach the end, you can do two things. One, you, you're, you're relieved from all the suffering that we're going through now. If you're a believer, you are in the presence of Christ, enjoying Him forever. But if in the day of birth, you're entering into this sinful and cursed world. Entering into a broken world where you're going to experience suffering and sin and shame and death and tears. And in that sense, the preacher is saying, better is the day of death and the day of one's birth. I think in another sense, at the end of your life, you can look back on your life and you can see the hand of God at work. And you can see how He has orchestrated things together and you can see some of what this tapestry is coming to be. You may not see it all until glory, but you can see some of the handiwork of God. And at the day of birth, it's still all in front of you. And you go through all of those experiences wondering, what is God doing with all of this? Verse 2, It is better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He's basically saying it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. It's better to go into the house of mourning where people are mourning and they're sad and they're... What happened? (laughs) And they're crying (laughs) than to go into the house of feasting and joy. How can that be? That sounds like where Jesus is turning... All of, uh, of these things. Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't make sense to us. But in the house of mourning, at a funeral, we see what happens at the latter part of the verse. For this is the end of all mankind. We're all going to die. For this is the end of all mankind. We're all, and, and it says, and the living will lay it to heart. When we're at a wedding, we're not thinking about the ultimate questions of life. We're just rejoicing in the moment. But when you go to a funeral, it's reminded to you every time, one of these days, I'm going to be in that box. One of these days, that's coming for me. And it lays us to heart. Lays it to heart for us. So that we we contemplate the bigger issues. We contemplate... What is my relationship with God like? Am I right before Him? 
Am I ready for that day to come whenever I meet Him? The living lay it to heart when they are in the house of mourning. Sorrow is better for laughter than laughter. Verse 3. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. This is another difficult one. You know, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus said very similar things. It's Sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness of face, the, hardness, the heart is made glad. You know, it's probably hard for many younger people to understand this. But I think with age, I think with experience in life, it may come to us a little bit more. Maybe not perfectly. We're, all, we're still see through a glass darkly. But I think those who have experienced mourning and then come through it on the other side and can still say, God is good. He loves me. He knows what He's doing. I may have experienced this loss, but God is good. That can bring about a gladness of heart that is deeper than what you could experience before when you'd never known suffering. Verse 4, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Again, we're brought back to the house of mourning. We're brought back to the funeral. Someone who's wise will be there. Someone who who is wise, their heart will be there thinking about those things, thinking about those ultimate issues, thinking about what will come to me at the end of my days. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of fools is not giving those ultimate issues a thought. Just living life for the day having a big party all the time, and never thinking about what will one day come. Verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. We don't like to hear rebuke. We don't like it when someone comes to us and says, you've wronged me. But here, the preacher is telling us, better is the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. If we're in the wrong, if we truly are in the wrong, the wise man coming to us should not be taken as, as a personal insult, but as correction that we should love. Now, that sounds weird to us, but it goes right along with what Proverbs says. The fool despises wisdom and instruction. But the wise man takes a rebuke to heart, searches himself, and finds what was wrong in what, was, what I was doing. Whereas the fool, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. They may, a, a fool may sing your praises. 
may, may tell you how good you are all the time, and it, it, and it may make you feel good. But how are you going to grow from that? How are you going to change from that? A song of fools might be the song of a yes man. Just telling you yes to everything. You don't need a yes man. You need someone to point you to the Scriptures. To point you to what is God doing in all of this. We like to hear a yes man. Someone who agrees with us all the time. Who sings our praises. But we need someone in our life to be that wise person to rebuke us when we need it. Verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of fools. This also is vanity. The crackling of thorns. Uh, thorns may have been used as a, as a fuel there, as, a, as an easy thing to, that was dry to be able to put under a pot to be able to cook something up quickly. Um, it's here and it's gone. It's, it's a, it makes a, a big roar and it's gone in a minute. The crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's vanity. It vanishes. It's gone. Verse 7. Surely oppression, oppression drives the wise to madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. One of the things that the preacher has complained about as he looks upon the world and, and how oh, there's so, so, many, so many things wrong with the world, it's the oppression of the poor, of, about people being cheated and, and, and the poor being mistreated. And it drives him mad. And here he says, surely the oppression, of, oppression drives the wise to madness. And a bribe corrupts the heart. You know, even a wise person might be tempted to greed, might be tempted to, to take a bribe. But if he does, it corrupts him. He, he no longer, if he gives in to that, though he was wise, he, he, he loses something. He's corrupted. Money contempt. I told you earlier in the year about my uh, classmate from college who was uh, arrested for um, embezzlement from his church. I heard later he was sentenced to 10 years in prison because he'd embezzled over $800,000 from his church. Even somebody who was a, a good man from all the perspective of of what people can see can still be tempted and it, it corrupts the heart. It wipes away any sense of integrity that we may have had. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning and the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. I think these, again, point us back to this, this tapestry. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. At the end, you can see the big picture of what God was doing in the beginning, you don't see it all. It's not clear. It doesn't make sense to us. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Someone who's patient in spirit as history is unfolding or as your life is unfolding, if you're patiently waiting on God, trusting that He knows what He's doing as He's unfolding history, that's better than the proud in spirit. The one who looks at all that he's accumulated in life and thinks, hey, I'm doing pretty good. They haven't seen the whole picture yet. Because if they're living their life without God, feeling like they've pretty got it all together, feeling like they have all they need, but living apart from God, they're boastful in their pride, they're not looking at the big picture. They're missing it. And they'll be sorry. Verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. If we keep this perspective on life, that God is working out history, if that God is working out our lives, that He has a grand design for it, that we can't see It ought to help us not to be quick to become angry. When someone wrongs us, we don't have to be angry about it. God knows what's going on. He can take care of it. He can vindicate me if someone has falsely accused me. And you don't have to become angry if you remember that God is in control and He has everything. He's named everything from the beginning. But we could be tempted to this. And so he warns us not to be quick to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. If we become angry, it could just lodge there and eat away at us. And just like a bribe, it can corrupt us. Verse 10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know the good old days. We can often fall into this. Oh, I remember when church was like this and everybody came to church on Sunday whether they were a Christian or not. And the stores closed on Sundays. We remember the good old days. But the preacher warns us about this. I know we often fall into it. Even I can think, man, we, we live in such a rough time. Things seem to be so much better back then. But the preacher warns us about this kind of thinking. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For this, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It, instead, it comes from a desire inside of us for security. We remember what it was like then. And, and we'd like to go back to what it was like then. We, we'd like to go back to a time when we felt secure and things were, were as, as we felt should be normal. But the preacher warns us against this. We need to remember the time that we're in right now is where God has put us. We ought not want to, to go back to a time that once was. He has called us to this moment right where we are. He has prepared us for this moment right where we are. 
to accomplish the mission He's called us to right where we are. We ought not to wish for better circumstances that, from, that were from the past, but take what He's given us right now and remember that's come from God's hand. If it's come into my life, if it's come into the world this way, then He can sustain me through it. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. Again, he just, I think here's pretty simple. He's just reminding us again, it's, it's better to be wise than to be foolish. There is an advantage in wisdom. So much through Proverbs we hear, or not Proverbs, through Ecclesiastes we hear, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But at, at the end of the day, he compares wisdom and folly and says it's better to be wise. And so here he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. We can feel secure when we have a little bit of money in the bank. We can feel like we have protection. If we're, we're, we're uncertain about the times, we're uncertain about what will happen, and if we have just a little bit of money in the bank, that can take care of us. And the preacher says wisdom is like that. Wisdom is protection, just like money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It's good to have wisdom. It's helpful. It's protection for us. And then he comes to to close the poetic section and says, Consider the work of God. We're back to that tapestry again. God's work. Consider the work of God. His grand design through all of human history. His grand design through your life and my life. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? The preacher, looking at life, looking at all the oppression that is in the world, looking at all the the sin that is in the world, the, the effects of the fall and the curse on the earth, Living in this fallen world, the preacher responds, who can make straight what God has made crooked? And then we come to verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. If things are going well for you, be joyful. Enjoy that. But in the day of adversity... Consider. God has made one as well as the other. When things are hard, when things are difficult, when things do not work out the way they should, consider this, the preacher tells us. God has made this day the same that He made the day of prosperity, the day that we gladly rejoiced. 
God has made this day, God has made the day, the one day as well as the other, so that men may not find out anything that will be after them. There's a, uh, he has done this so that man may not find out what will come after him. We, if we knew the future, we could be tempted by so many different things. If we knew how... Uh, but He's given us good and He's brought into our lives adversity, challenges. It's all a part of His plan and we're not supposed to know the end. Instead, we're supposed to live by faith looking to Him, trusting in the midst of it all, like Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so much more because of Jesus. The preacher didn't know the whole story. He didn't know he, 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 may, he knew some about the promises. I mean, if this came after the time of David, which surely it did, he knew that David was promised a son that would sit on his throne forever. He knew that there was a seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. But he didn't have it all figured out. We sit in much better perspective. Better is the end than the beginning. You know, before Christ came into the world, they were at the beginning. They, didn't, they were looking from one end of the perspective of time. They didn't yet see what was always going to take place. But at the end, those things that come after Christ, we can look at what He did on the cross. We're in a better position We can look at what He did on the cross and how He suffered, bled, and died for our sins. That we can be redeemed. Though we live in a fallen and broken world that that is broken in so many ways by this curse, that we all sin, that even though we may be tempted to think we're pretty good people, we still might be tempted to a bribe that we still might be tempted by so many things. We fall and we sin, but we can find forgiveness and grace in Jesus. We stand after the cross. We stand in a way at the end, not all the way at the end, but we stand in a way looking this way back at what Jesus has done. We can be thankful for where we stand in history. Where God has placed us right now. God has made the day of prosperity. And God has made the day of adversity. And every one of us is living in one of those right now. And God has made them all. listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.